Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 22nd of February. We're in the last leg of February. It's almost spring. Winter's almost behind us. And we are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. So do check out their services at LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. Giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, shipping worldwide, homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, nine games to get through. Uh, starting Friday night, Wolves won, Leeds nil. This was quite a good game of football, decided by a very, very fortunate goal. Um, it was a fairly well balanced game. Both teams created some chances, both teams had some sloppy play defensively. The goal is basically a complete fluke. Adama Traore hits an unbelievable shot. It hits the crossbar. It's bouncing out. It hits Melier, who's dived to try and save the ball. Hits him in the back, the back of the head, and goes into the net. It's a complete fluke. There's nothing the goalkeeper can do. There's nothing anyone can do. It's a great shot from Traore, but it's just really unfortunate for a young goalkeeper who had played quite well and made a couple of good saves up until that point, it's a big win for Wolves, a win they needed because their form has been, it's been terrible over the last couple of months. They've had a couple of good wins lately. They need to build momentum. They're certainly not going to be happy with a bottom half placing. They're not going to be happy with the fact that they've conceded more goals than they've scored, that they've lost more goal uh, games than they've won. But they moved to within one point of Arsenal. They're now in 11th place. They jump over Leeds. They have won three of their last four. So they are turning things around, which is important for them at this point in the season. They have Newcastle away next, then Manchester City away, and then Villa away. Three away games in a row. That's quite unusual, but it's just the way the schedule's broken for them this season. Then they get Liverpool at home, 
and West Ham at home. So that's their next five. Newcastle away, Man City away, Villa away, Liverpool at home, West Ham at home. There's some winnable games in that group. The form Liverpool are in, every game against them is winnable right now. They'll give themselves a good chance to beat West Ham at home, despite West Ham's good form this season. I think they'll fancy Villa away, especially if Grealish is still out by then. And that Newcastle game up next, that's the one that they will have the best chance of winning because Newcastle are in terrible form. Wolves should go into that game quite confident. But those five games now are going to pretty much define their season and give them either a chance of being a top-half team, which is what the aim will be, getting back on track, justifying the money they've spent over the last couple of years, perhaps extending the tenure of Nuno. If it doesn't go well and they drop back in and end up 14th, 15th, I think we'll see change there this summer. For Leeds, I mean, it's a disappointing result because they would have hoped to have won that game, but it's back-to-back defeats now. As with Wolves, they've conceded more than they've scored. They've lost more than they've won. But as a newly promoted team, I think 12th position is is a really um, really good landing spot for them. They get Southampton at home next, then Aston Villa at home. Then they're away to West Ham, at home to Chelsea, and away to Fulham. Again, winnable games. The next two being at home, they'll hope to win at least one, if not both, of them. West Ham away will be difficult, and they've struggled playing in the capital this year. Chelsea at home, I think two months ago, they would have quite fancied that one. Chelsea are different under Tuchel. But it'll be a good game of football. It'll be interesting to see Bielsa go against Tuchel. And then that Fulham game. Now, Fulham obviously have turned things around. They're in better form. It'll be interesting to see how they are in a month. Because with the gap being what it is now, there's a good chance Fulham aren't a bottom three team at that point. And if they're not, how does the approach change? Do they become more defensive-minded and invite leads onto them? Do they try and chase the game, continue to try and move away from the bottom three, and potentially open up for leads? That's going to be a good game of football. Two good footballing sides, lots of talent. That's one to look forward to the 19th of March. But the Southampton game next, Southampton are in such terrible form. That's tomorrow night, Tuesday night. I think that is one that Leeds will have their eye on as, as a game they should win. Uh, they obviously get the extra day's turnaround as well that Southampton don't get. Southampton played Saturday morning, a one-all draw with Chelsea. A good result ended the dreadful run of six defeats in a row that they'd suffered in the league. Taki Minamino put them 1-0 up. Ice-cold finish, dummied the shot, left Mendy and Aspilicueta flailing on the ground. Cool little finish. Mason Mount makes it 1-1. A penalty without question. Danny Ings just lunges in. Silly forwards tackle in his own penalty area. It is a penalty. Mount steps up and scores. The concern for Chelsea is they dominated possession. They had double the shots of Southampton. But again, they're reliant on a penalty. Again, there's nothing from open play. That's three games now that they've relied on a penalty to get them a result. 
two draws turned into wins and a defeat turned into a draw here with a penalty. They played some nice football, but there wasn't much purpose to some of it. They didn't seem to have much of a cutting edge in this game. Now, Tammy Abraham started. He wasn't expected to, having been brought off during the week. He had to be withdrawn. Callum Hudson-Odoi was brought on at halftime and then taken off again about 20 minutes later. And apparently he's not injured. Apparently it was a tactical decision, which seems strange. It seems strange. I wonder if we'll see much blowback from that, if we'll see much fallout. Will he get get his head down and just keep working, or will we start to hear rumours of discontent? He's a very, very talented player. He probably needs to play more regularly than he will at Chelsea because of how many options they have. He He's the type that needs to be starting every single game. I think in the summer we'll see clubs come in for him on loan, guaranteeing that he'll start 80% of their league games. You could see clubs from the Bundesliga, maybe from La Liga. I think there'll be Premier League clubs that have interest as well, of course. But I do think he's probably going to need to step away from Chelsea to develop, to then perhaps come back to Chelsea and make the impact that, that he can, given his talent. I quite liked Salisu and how he looked in defence for Southampton this weekend. He partnered Vestigard with Bednarak, stuck at right back because Kyle Walker-Peters is injured and they don't have any depth there. I thought the midfield functioned well for Saints. Minamino and, and Jenepo was the, the wide players who play out to in and, you know, 4-4-2 out of possession, box midfield in possession. I thought both of them played quite well. Danny Ings had a bit of a disappointing afternoon. Not much service. Scuffed at a half chance. And then obviously gave away the penalty. And Nathan Redmond partnered him. And he's just a very frustrating player. The talent is all there. He knows what he wants to do. His decision making has held him back in his career. And that is the reason that he's at Southampton and hasn't moved on from there. When they bought him, the idea was develop him for two years and flip him as they had with a bunch of other players. He hasn't developed well because his decision-making has never improved. He is a good player, but he has the talent to be more than a good player. He could be a very good player. Unfortunately, his decision-making has always let him down. Uh, another poor game for Timo Werner. Thought he was very much on the peripheral. Floated in and out. Had some good moments, but largely a passenger. Thought it was uh, unusual for Tuchel to leave Jorginho out. That partnership with him and Kovacic has worked really well. Now, I understand N'Golo Kante is N'Golo Kante and he needs games. But that partnership had been working really well for you in midfield. And in this game, you did look like you were massively missing him. He came on, but he came on for Kovacic. Uh, and the partnership with him and Kante, we've seen it before. It doesn't really work. Work, work to do for Tuchel. No question, work to do. Chelsea are fifth in the league. They are two points behind West Ham. Who thought we'd say that at this point in the season? Two points behind West Ham. Their run of four wins in a row comes to an end, but they're still unbeaten in six under Thomas Tuchel. Uh, their next six, well, they've got Atletico Madrid in the Champions League tomorrow. But it is a very difficult run of games for them now. They've got Manchester United at home. 
Then they've got Liverpool away. Then Everton at home. Then Leeds away. Then they get the second leg against Atletico Madrid. Then Sheffield United in the FA Cup. And then West Brom at home, which will be the easiest of of those games. But the next four are very, very difficult. And they will go a long way towards deciding whether or not Chelsea are going to be a top four team. If they could win three of those games, it would put them in a great position. If they were to lose three of them, they could start to lose a little bit of touch. Now, you know, they've got a lot of attacking options. But the attack has been blunt under Tuchel. I mean, you beat Newcastle 2-0. Great. Newcastle aren't good. You needed a penalty to beat Sheffield uh, Sheffield United 2-1. They are not good. Beat Spurs 1-0 with a penalty. Again, not playing very well at the minute. Beat Burnley 2-0. Bottom five team. Drew at Wolves. Needed a penalty to draw with Southampton at the weekend. This is not a team fully functioning in attack yet. And it's not fair to expect them to either. But against United, against Liverpool, against Everton and against Leeds, they're going to have to be better in attack because those teams will be better in attack than the teams that you've already faced. You're more likely to concede goals against these four than you have been against the last six. Wolves, less goals than goals conceded. Burnley, less goals than goals conceded. Spurs, over the last 10 games, less goals than goals conceded. Sheffield United, less goals than goals conceded. Newcastle, less goals than goals conceded. Southampton, less goals than goals conceded. You're playing against teams either in bad form or who've had bad seasons. So your results in those games are what you'd expect them to be, given your talent, given a new manager bounce. Tuchel needs to get the attack to start functioning. He needs to start figuring that out. I know he's only been in charge for just under a month. I know it's still early, but the next four games are... Look, Atletico Madrid in the Champions League is massive for them as well. The next six games, two against Atleti and those four in the league, United, Liverpool, Everton, Leeds. They're going to be massive in deciding whether this season becomes a success or is a failure. Now, it won't be on Tuchel. It'll be on Lampard regardless. This is a free hit for Thomas Tuchel. It's like when Jurgen Klopp took over. You're playing with house money. This is the other manager's mess that you've inherited. If you get top four and do well in the Champions League, you're a genius. If you don't, it's his fault. So, the defences look better, but again, you're playing against poor attacks. The attack has not looked particularly good. The midfield has functioned well. You've had a lot of good middle third play, a lot of progressive passing, progressive ball carrying. That's been impressive. The other end of things, though, less so. For Saints, they're 13th. This is a good draw. It ends the run of uh, six defeats in a row. Up next, Leeds United away. Difficult game. Then they've got Everton away. Then Sheffield United away. Then Man City away. And then Brighton at home. So four games in a row away from home. The schedule has not been kind to them at a time where their confidence probably isn't very high. 
And their form is not very good. So, you know, Leeds are a good team, but they're in around the same position as them. Everton are obviously a good team. That'll be a difficult one. Sheffield United, even away, that's a game that Southampton should look to win. City, I wouldn't put pressure on anybody to get anything from City at the moment. They're just playing at a different level to everybody else. And then Brighton at home is a game that they should look to win. They're a team below them in the league. Yes, Brighton have been very good lately. Yes, Brighton are arguably a better team than them. But league league position still matters. And Saints should be looking to win that game. Next up, we had the most boring game of the weekend, of course. Burnley against West Bromwich Albion. Um, not a whole lot of much happened in this game. Semi Ajayi was sent off after 30 minutes for, for a deliberate handball that denied Burnley a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, he handled the ball just inside his own half, but there was a Burnley player running onto it, running through. Other than that, not a whole lot happened. West Brom were the better team. Even with 10 men, they were the better team. Created the better chances. Uh, was impressed with Diagne up front. Thought he thought he played quite well. Pereira had a couple of long-range chances. Well, chances, half chances at best. But overall, they were the better team. Burnley were very flat. Seemed to lack real energy in this game. Disappointing performance from Burnley. I have to say, very disappointing performance from Burnley. They had close enough to a full strength 11. They were missing the two forwards. But I still think Jay Rodriguez is one of their two best strikers. So, you know, I'd argue that Chris Wood is the only one missing from their best 11. I think the 11 that they had on the pitch, if you put Chris Wood in for Vidra, that's their best team. Pope, Loughton, Taylor at left back, Tarkovsky and me. Brownhill, Cork, Westwood, McNeil in the midfield, Rodriguez, and I think Chris Wood. I think that's their best 11. They're only missing one player, and that's a very disappointing performance at home in a game that you should really be looking to win, a game you should be confident in winning, given how dreadful West Brom have been. But look, a point is a point for Burnley. They're 15th in the league. They're six points clear of Fulham. Three points clear of Newcastle, who are the team currently in real trouble. And I think Burnley can be, you know, can be quietly confident that they're going to be okay. Now, they've got Spurs next, away from home. That's going to be a difficult one. It doesn't get much easier. Then they've got Leicester at home, then Arsenal at home. Then they're away to uh, Everton. And then they've got Southampton away. It's a difficult five-game run. There's no obvious game that you'd look at and say, that's a game they'll win. But nobody really enjoys going to Turf more. And, you know, Leicester and, and Arsenal, while better teams than Burnley for sure, maybe not the best suited against the physical nature of Burnley. So maybe they're games they can get something from. Tottenham are in dreadful form, but you'd still expect Tottenham to beat them um, at, at the Tottenham Stadium. So. Look, this is going to be a difficult run, especially the next four. That Southampton game is probably the easiest of the lot, and it's it's hard to predict what kind of form Southampton will be in by then because obviously their run of games isn't the easiest either. Given this run of form, if Fulham can pull themselves back up, there's no reason to think that they can't overtake Burnley as well. Now, we'll have a look at the Fulham fixtures in a mo, but 
that's a difficult run of run of fixtures for for Burnley. Really, really is a difficult run of fixtures for Burnley. Um, for West Brom, things don't look particularly good. Obviously, second from bottom, you're you're three points clear of uh, of Sheffield United, but you're eight points behind Fulham. You're eleven points behind Newcastle. Up next, you've got Brighton at home, Everton at home, Newcastle at home. Palace away and Chelsea away. And you know what? That's a that is a fairly favourable run. So it is a favourable run. The problem for them is they've given themselves just too much to do. I think at this point, I don't think anybody, even the most, you know, even the most optimistic West Brom fan, I I don't think is looking at it thinking we have a chance here. I think they've just struggled so badly under Sam that any chance they may have had when he took over is is gone at this point. They were three points from safety when he took over. And now, I mean, like I say, they're 11 points from safety. And their goal difference means it's 12. Because Newcastle's goal difference is, is minus 17. Theirs is minus 36. Their goal difference is 10 worse than anybody in the league. The only team that is 10 is Sheffield United. Anybody else, it's 19. Their goal difference is 19 worse than anybody else in the league other than Sheffield United. Newcastle's is minus 17. It's the second worst, well, the third worst after West Brom and Sheffield United. To take out the team below them, their goal difference is double, doubly as bad as anybody else in the league. It's a defensive calamity. 55 goals conceded. Kept a clean sheet at the weekend. 55 goals conceded. I tried to warn them. These people don't listen. These people don't listen. Right. I might as well talk about it now. Liverpool nil, Everton 2. Um... First things first, congratulations to the Toffees. Uh, a deserved victory. Uh, without question, the better team on the day. Um, there can be no doubt that they deserved their first derby win at Anfield since 99, uh, 22 years. So congrats to them for that. Liverpool's form is, I mean, it's diabolical. Their last 11 Premier League games... They've won two, drawn three, and lost six. Uh, They've scored nine and conceded 15. Now, that's nine points over 11 games. You work that that out over the course of a season, it gives you 31 points, which is relegation form. For 11 games, which is almost a third of the season, Liverpool have been playing relegation football. And it it kills the narrative that Jurgen Klopp can just transform anything into greatness. It kills the narrative that if you know player X plays, Liverpool never lose um, because they do. And um, it, it kills the narrative that Liverpool have a strong squad. You look at Liverpool's squad; their first eleven's always been, or you know, over the last couple of years, has been very, very strong. But when you think of 
Liverpool's reserve 11. You look at Adrian or Kelleher as the goalkeeper. Neither of them are the backup goalkeeper you want for a top four team. The back four would be Nico Williams. This is what everybody fit. Nico Williams, Joel Matip, Nat Phillips, and uh, Costas Simicus. Midfield would be Curtis Jones, Ginny Wijnaldum, Naby Keita. And the uh, the front three would be Shakiri, Origi, and Jota. Now, that's that's based on Allison, Trent, Gomez, Virgil, Robertson, Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago across the midfield, and Salah, Firmino, and, um, and Mane up front. So, again, Adrian, Nico Williams, Joel Matip, Nat Phillips, Simicus, Curtis Jones, Ginny Wijnaldum, Naby Keita, Shakiri, Origi, and Jota. Four of them you'd trust in any game. Four. Matip, Wijnaldum, Naby, Jota. Two of them are decent. Shakiri and Simicus. We haven't seen enough of Simicus, but we know he's a decent player. And then Curtis Jones is a big prospect. That's seven. But again, only four of them you'd trust in any game. The rest, I mean, the goalkeeper's championship-level quality. Phillips, Nico Williams, championship-level players. Anorigi, I mean, championship would probably be kind to him at this point. He's probably a League One player the way he's playing. Um, if you want to compete season on season, you need a, a bigger squad than Liverpool have. You need 22 to 25 players that you can trust. Now, players 23, 24, and 25 can all be... James Milner types, who you're only going to stick in for certain games. You're maybe largely keeping round for their influence on the training ground in the dressing room, but they're people that you trust to have around. James Milner, if he's in your squad, needs to be player 23, 24, or 25. He can't be player 15 or 17 or 12. He can't be. Liverpool's squad isn't good enough. It's what's killed them this season. And yes, injuries, because the squad wasn't strong enough. If Liverpool had had a good fourth-choice centre-back when Virgil and Gomez got hurt, then it could have been Matip plus that centre-back. You keep Fabinho in midfield when Matip can play. You bring Fabinho back into a into centre-back when Matip can't play. But you still have a good centre-back next to him. Not a Reese williams not a Nat Phillips. With respect to them, they haven't let the team down at all. I'm just making the point that the level that they play at the level they're capable of is not the Liverpool level. Uh, the level Liverpool need, and when you play centre backs that the rest of the team know aren't quite at the level you need, it affects the rest of the team. The defensive line has to sit deeper. The full backs can't get forward as much. The midfield sits deeper because the centre backs are deeper. The attack comes deeper because the midfield is not supporting them enough. When your centre backs aren't of the level you need. It affects the whole team. The knock-on effect is continuous throughout the team. More injury news for Liverpool. Jordan Henderson had to go off injured. Jurgen Klopp has said it doesn't look good. It looks like it could be a long one. This is his sixth injury in 367 days. The first one was against Atletico Madrid last year on February the 18th. This one comes this year on February the 20th. 367 days, six injuries. Jordan Henderson is 31 this summer. 
So that's going to be a problem moving forward. We've already seen with James Milner in the last couple of years how injury-prone he's become. We know that in Naby Keita they have an injury-prone player. We know that Joe Gomez and Joe Matip are injury-prone. Van Dijk is going to be coming back off a long-term injury. Thiago Alcantara has shown he's an injury-prone player over his career. It's something Liverpool are going to need to look at. They can't continue to carry. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's the other one. But they can't continue to carry that many players who have that many injury issues. Everton win the game 2-0. They go ahead early. James Rodriguez, in one of his only real involvements in the game, picks the ball up, slides a pass through, Richarlison runs in behind and scores. It's a good goal from an Everton point of view. It's a poor goal from a Liverpool point of view. There's a, a poor header by Thiago Alcantara. That's not really the cause of the goal, but it does sort of set the wheels in motion. Uh, unfortunately for Liverpool, there's a lack of communication between the centre-backs. Richarlison moves from one side to the other. There's no communication to let the centre-back know, like, that man's come to you, he's on your shoulder, anything like that. Quebec is completely laser-focused on the ball. Completely locked in, eyes on the ball, nothing else. Not aware that the striker stood on his shoulder, ready to run. When Richarlison makes the run, I don't even think Quebec knows he's there because Quebec turns to go for the ball and seems surprised that he's there. Quebec had started this game poorly. He'd misjudged the flight of a couple of balls in what was a horrendous wind, but he hadn't started well. For the first 25 minutes in this game, he was genuinely terrible. He got better, but for the first 25 minutes, he was genuinely awful. Um, The other problem for this goal is Trent Alexander-Arnold. He's in a great position. He can track the run. He just chooses not to. He doesn't sweep across behind the centre-backs. He doesn't track the run at Richarlison. It's rudimentary full-back play, and he fails at it. And it's unfortunate. It just It's what happens. The biggest mistake is on Quebec, but the lack of communication and Trent's failure to cover are issues. They're issues that would be solved with a centre-back in there who can lead and tell people what they're meant to be doing. Um... Henderson goes off on about 30. Um, he has a nice bit of play, sort of dribbles by Decore, turns and then crumples in a heap. Um, there didn't seem to be any contact at the time, but he went down and it was quite clear something was wrong straight away. Physios came on. It looks like it's a groin or abductor injury. Uh, he tried to carry on, at least until Nat Phillips was ready to come on. Phillips had gotten stripped, but needed to warm up. Um, Henderson lasted about another 45 seconds on the field and then he was doubled over again so off he went, Nat Phillips came on truth be told, Liverpool got better from there now that's not because Jordan Henderson went off it's because the centre-back came on Jordan Henderson's a much, much better footballer than Nat Phillips there's absolutely no doubt about that but Nat Phillips is a much better centre-back than Jordan Henderson Jordan Henderson can't play centre-back he just can't play centre-back there's just so much evidence now over the last eight games that he just can't play there. Doesn't have the positional awareness. Doesn't read the game well enough. No spatial awareness. He's just not a centre-back. It's not his fault. He's a midfield player. He's a box-to-box midfield player. It was unfair to ask him to play centre-back in the first, first place. He wasn't put there by choice. He was put there out of desperation. It hasn't worked. He's been really poor. It's affected his game. 
he needs to go back into midfield whenever he gets fit again and can never see centre-back again, ever. Just can't play there. Simple as that. It was obvious before he ever went there that he couldn't play that position. Doesn't have the attributes for it. Needs to play in midfield. Nat Phillips came on, Liverpool looked better. Quebec looked better. Settled down, having a centre-back next to him. Those two were absolutely fine. Look, they made a couple of errors. They're young. They're inexperienced. They didn't make any more errors than were made against Leicester or against Leipzig by the midfielder who was playing in there. They actually made less mistakes than he made in those two games. Liverpool were quite good from 30 to about 80. They didn't create a whole lot, but they were better. They were decent. And at this point, decent is all you can really ask for. They get done with a sucker punch. Look, Pickford's made a couple of good saves to this point. Liverpool dominating possession. And they get done on a counter-attack. Phillips steps out of position, misjudges it, gets beaten badly, and doesn't recover quick enough. Ball goes to Richarlison wide on the right. Plays it through the middle. Calvert-Lewin is sprinting onto it. Trent Alexander-Arnold is matching him stride for stride. Trent slides, tries to block the shot. Allison saves the shot. Trent, obviously, having slid to block the shot, is on the floor. Calvert-Lewin makes no attempt to avoid Trent on the floor to get towards the rebound. Knees him in the back of the head and falls over. Mark Clattenburg, who's a moron, has written a column today saying he purposely lifted his head purposely lifted his head he couldn't see Calvert-Lewin because he was behind him what do you mean he purposely lifted his head he was on the floor in no way was this a penalty there's absolutely not a chance this was a penalty Everton fans want Trent sent off for this they claim he raised his foot because Lee Dixon and a couple of other commentators said oh he raises his foot Calvert-Lewin is parallel to the floor before Trent raises his foot. He's already falling over, having need Trent in the back of the head. What's happened is Trent has slid in to make a tackle and then he is punished purely for existing, purely for having a physical presence in the world. That's what he's punished for because there's nothing he can do. Once he commits to try and win the first ball, there's nothing he can do from there. Calvert-Lewin just plows right over him, falls over, gets a penalty. It's as bad a decision as you will see all week. The referee, who Chris Kavanagh, who I praised on this show last week, and actually didn't have too bad of a game, completely messed this up. And then the arrogance of him to be told, go and look at the screen. And he goes to look at the screen glances at it, doesn't even wait to see the incident itself and walks away and gives the penalty. The absolute arrogance of the referee who made a mistake and wouldn't correct it. And the reason I know he made a mistake, he didn't send Trent off. If he believes it's a penalty, then under the rules of the game, Trent has not made an, an attempt to play the ball. Trent has to be sent off. Under the rules of the game, if he believes it's a penalty, he has to believe it's a red card. 
That's how I know he knows it wasn't a penalty because he didn't send him off. Now, look, this doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that Everton deserved to win this game. I'm not in any way sitting here suggesting that Everton robbed a victory or anything like that. Everton 100% deserved their victory. But that is a shocker of a decision. Carlo Ancelotti got his tactical plan spot on for this game. They got their early goal, they bedded in, and they defended and defended and defended. They tried to hit Liverpool on the counter-attack, and eventually one of those counter-attacks worked out for them. And if the Calvert-Lewin goal just goes in, if the, if the first shot just goes in, or Allison saves it and he gets to the rebound and taps at home, you'll hear no complaints from me. Everton deserved to win the game. I have no complaints at all about the outcome of the game. But that penalty is nonsense. Now, credit to Carlo. Again, he got his tactical game plan spot on. A very Italian setup. I've seen all the different pundits say, oh, he came and played a back five. No, he didn't. He did play five defenders, but he played a five-man back four. Now, what I mean by that is he played Coleman, Holgate, Keane, Godfrey, and Dinya. When Andy Robertson had the ball, Seamus Coleman moved to right-side midfield. Mason Holgate went right back. Michael Keane went right centre-back. Godfrey was left centre-back, and Dinya tucked in as the left-back. When Trent Alexander-Arnold had the ball, Dinya stepped out to left midfield. Godfrey went left back. Keane went left centre back. Holgate goes to right centre back and Coleman tucks in at right back. When Liverpool attacked through the middle, you saw Ben Godfrey and or Mason Holgate, Mason Holgate step out to become a defensive midfielder. And then Keane plus the other one would form the centre back pairing and Coleman and Dinya would both tuck in as full backs. Not a back five. It's a five-man back four. It's a weird thing to say, but that's what it was. It was a five-man back four where either Dina, Coleman, or more often than not, Godfrey from the, the centre-backs were actually playing as the fourth midfielder rather than as a member of the, the defensive line. It was really, really clever. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of timing. It takes a lot of intelligence. It takes great communication. And I think credit to Michael Keane Jordan Pickford was voted man of the match, but I think Michael Keane was more deserving of this. Constantly letting everybody know where they needed to be. Made a couple of great blocks and challenges himself. Won everything in the air. But his, his leadership, his organizational skills in that game were absolutely on point. And the way Everton made it work was very, very impressive. Midfield has functioned as part of it. When Coleman would move to right midfield, DeCorey and Tom Davies would be the central midfielders and Gomez would float, um, not to the left midfield, but you know, kind of like an inside left in midfield. And on the flip side, when Dinia would push into left midfield, Gomez and Davies would become the right, uh, their central pairing, and DeCorey would float that little bit more to the right and just protect against the switch. Dakure is 6-1-6-2. Gomez is the same. 
both very good in the air. So Liverpool live on that switch ball. Robertson to Trent, Trent to Robertson. By having Gomez drop in with Dina or Decore drop in with Coleman, depending which side the ball was coming from, they were able to live against, to, to cope with that. It was very, very good. Very, very intelligent. Tom Davies, I thought, had an excellent game in midfield as well. Credit to Everton. Absolute credit to them. Great win. Great performance. Carlo outmanaged Klopp on the day. Scottish tactics spot on. No complaints to me about the result, but that penalty was a nonsense. Everton are seventh in the league. They are level on points at Liverpool, but they do have a game in hand. They will play Southampton next. Uh, That's at home. Then West Brom away. Then they've got Chelsea away. Then Burnley away. Then Man City at home in the FA Cup. And then Crystal Palace. So it's a favourable run of games. There is three. uh, There is a couple of away games there. Sorry, the Burnley game's at home. Everton at home. West Brom away. Chelsea away. Burnley at home. And then Palace at home. It's a favourable run. Even with the away games, West Brom is a game they should go and win. If they get a point at Chelsea, it's a, it's a great result. But Southampton, Burnley and Palace at home are all games they'll expect to win. Everton have put themselves in a really strong position right now. They're playing good football. They're still a little bit inconsistent, but they're starting to get pieces back. They're starting to integrate you know, Holgate and Godfrey a lot more into the centre defence. And genuinely that that defensive performance was was really really impressive you're never going to entirely stop liverpool so they did rely on their goalkeeper but the defensive performance was really really impressive it was really clever it's very italian there's a little bit of german influence in it but it's very italian um credit yeah credit to carlo for liverpool like i said the form is dreadful it's four defeats in a row um, it's four defeats in a row at home as well, which is just shambolic. Up next, they've got uh, Sheffield United away, then Chelsea at home, then Fulham at home, then the second leg at, of, against Leipzig, which we don't know yet where it's meant to be. Meant to be at Anfield, but it could be elsewhere. Um, then Wolves away and then Arsenal away. It's not the toughest run of games, but the way they're playing... Every game is difficult. Every game is difficult. They will expect to beat Sheffield United away. They'll expect to beat Chelsea at home. They'll expect to beat Fulham at home. But it's just, it's very hard to predict at the moment how they're going to be. Now, Fabinho is pretty much back in training. He should be back for for the game against the Blades. Personally, I'd be tempted to play Phillips and Quebec at centre back and put Fabinho back into midfield. Naby Keita is also back. Again, I'd be tempted to play him, Fabinho, and Thiago as my midfield three. Jota is still a couple of weeks away. He's been a couple of weeks away for about two months now. Um, Something needs to change in this Liverpool team. Whether it's a move to a different shape, which Klopp has kind of hinted towards and, and toyed with a couple of times this season, move maybe to a 4-4-2 or a box midfield or a diamond midfield. But he can't continue to roll out the 4-3-3. It's just not working at all. 
it's not working at all. It's been dreadful. You're not getting the best out of your out of your players. Something needs to change for Liverpool because otherwise the season's going to be lost. And I don't know if Liverpool they they don't want to be in the Europa League. They definitely don't want to be in that conference thing, whatever it is that's starting up for next season. So are they better off finishing eighth or ninth? Like they'll still attract players, but will they have the money to do it? Because I don't see those owners being willing to spend a whole bunch without the guarantee of Champions League money. Now, maybe they will because they'll panic about not having it for a couple of seasons in a row. I mean, there's there's definitely Premier League players they could attract without Champions League football, the likes of Zambo, Basuma. I think, you know, if they want a, a Wijnaldum replacement, either of those, um, if they want to bring in a wide midfielder, maybe Rafinha. Um, I've seen some people say uh, Neto from Wolves. I wouldn't be against that. I think he's still a little bit raw, not quite ready, but, you know, He's still a good player. Uh, Rafinha would be my would be my preference. I think they'd get someone like an Odson Edward or Andre Silva from Eintracht Frankfurt up front if they didn't have Champions League. Um, you know they've been re- linked with uh, Gonçalves from from Sporting Lisbon as well. So there's definitely players out there they could get without Champions League. Um, it's just a matter of what money would be available and. How willing are Sadio Mane and Mo Salah going to be to stay? I think I think Becker will definitely stay. Um, Trent will stay. Robbo will stay. Virgil will definitely stay. Fabinho is the other one. I mean, he could be tempted by Champions League football, but I, I, again, I think he'll stay. Thiago will stay. Naby will stay. Um, you know. I think I think the only two they'd be at risk of losing are Mane and Salah. And I get the feeling Salah's a lot happier at the club than is the public portrayal of things from the media. Mane is impossible to know how he feels. He doesn't doesn't speak to the doesn't speak to the media. Um just keeps himself to himself. If if you were choosing to sell one you'd sell Mane. Salah's the better player and he's harder to replace. But what you'd get from Mane would be the question. Would you get 80 million for him? You would have got 100 million for him probably last year. You might have got 120 pre-COVID. But he's having a poor season. So I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know what the answer is. Uh, but again, something needs to change. They need to either get top four or finish eighth or ninth and miss out on Europe altogether because the Europa League is just not worth their while. Um, let's move on. Uh, into Sunday then. No, sorry, this was the last game on Saturday. Fulham against Sheffield United. Uh, Fulham outplayed them, outfought them. The better team, Adam Ola-Luckman scored a really nice goal. He played really well in this game. Zambo was monstrous in midfield. Absolutely monstrous in midfield. Again, with Fulham, the back four performed well. That centre-back pairing of Anderson and Tolson, if it had been in the team all season... I don't think they'd, they'd be in, in the relegation zone. Um, Maja's made a difference up front. His movement, his hold-up play, he's just a better hes a better fit for them right now than Mitrovic. Um, and this is a great result for them. Look, it's a 1-0 win but against the bot- team bottom of the league, but it, 
They need to be winning games. It doesn't matter who they're playing against. Uh, some strange decisions by uh, Chris Wilder in this game. The decision to play Chris Basham in midfield, baffling. Absolutely baffling. Looked completely out of place. He looked like if you put a horse into Crufts, that's what Chris Basham looked like. Absolutely all over the place. Arms and legs everywhere. Completely uncoordinated. Dreadful decision. Phil Jagielk is 103 years of age. He shouldn't be playing Premier League football anymore. There's just no reason for it. Um, yeah, just just a bad, bad day for, for Sheffield United. And the thing is, they needed a goal and they didn't bring on Rian Brewster, which tells you everything you need to know about how that transfer has gone this year. Tells you absolutely everything you need to know about that transfer. That is the worst transfer of the season. Um, the only one that comes close might be Aaron Ramsdale. Um, for the Blades, they've got Liverpool next. Then Villa uh, at home. Southampton at home. So three home games in the bounce. That's favourable. Then they go to Leicester. Then they go to Leeds. They've got Chelsea away in the um, in the FA Cup in between the Leicester and Leeds games. It's a difficult run of five games. Um, the Southampton game is probably the easiest of the bunch, but they do have three of them at home, which is of help. You get the feeling, though, that after these five games, their season's done. The season will be done and dusted. They won't have enough games left to make up the gap. It's a shame for them, but look, they made their own bed. Um, poor decisions in the summer. Didn't address the right positions. And unfortunately made the wrong decisions in, in positions that they did decide to fill. For Fulham, things now look promising. They're three points behind Newcastle. Uh, they're still 18th, and you know that is what it is, but they're only three points behind Newcastle with a better goal difference. They're only four points behind Brighton and six behind Burnley. Coming up next for them is a difficult run of games, though. Palace away. Spurs at home, Liverpool away, City at home, Leeds at home. They've got five games coming up, relatively quick succession. Like some of the teams I've named five games for, takes that takes them through to April. This only takes Fulham through to the 19th of March. So this will, this will tell us a lot. Like it's a difficult run. There's... Not really a game there that you'd look at and think, well, Leeds at home, because Leeds have been terrible playing in London this year. But other than that, there's not really a game there that you'd fancy to win. Take anything against City, because they're just too good. Um, but look, Fulham are giving themselves a chance. As I've said before, I think if they had a real manager, they wouldn't be in this position. But credit to Parker, over the last six weeks, they've been pretty good. Um, and they have turned things around a little bit, or you know, a decent amount. Um, Moving into Sunday then, West Ham 2, Tottenham 1. Good performance by West Ham, but I think Tottenham were unfortunate to lose this game. Tottenham dominated possession. They had lots of chances, lots of shots. Just could not get the ball on target. Unfortunate to hit the post. The crossbar once and the post once. Now, the one they hit the post would have been the fluke of the season. But look, West Ham are just continuing to pick up results. 
pick up wins and it is tremendous to see what David Moyes is doing. He is the manager of the year. There can be no doubt about that at this point. Uh, they went 1-0 up through Antonio, a, a scruffy scab of a goal. Just a, a, a typical Antonio goal, really, but needed to be there to score a fair play. Uh, Jesse Lingard put them 2-0 up uh, early in the second half. Again, so they scored on, on five minutes, they scored on 47. So getting the goals early in the half, coming out from the team talks, just fired up and flying. Um, really good goal for Lingard. Great to see him playing football and enjoying himself. I'm I'm surprised he's starting so much, but he's earning the spot. He's played well for them since joining. He has to maintain that form, though. He played instead of um, Ben Rama in this game. Fornals came back in, so maybe that's what Moyes is planning: is to just have four players, Bowen, Fornals, Ben Rama, Lingard, and rotate them. We'll see if Lingard starts instead of Bowen the next time. And then maybe Lingard sits out. Maybe that's what he is doing. Um, Issa Diop, I thought, had a very solid game at centre-back. Rice and Suchik, again, very, very good in centre midfield. Get through a lot of work. But again, I do think Spurs I do think Spurs were the better team on the day and, and probably deserved at least a draw. Um, Lucas Morris pulled one back with a header from a Gareth Bale corner. Bale came on and actually looked like he cared. Had a couple of moments of brilliance. It's the first time in a couple of months he's actually looked engaged like he wants to be there, like he wants to be involved. And Spurs are going to need him to be. The Spurs need him to perform because it's not looking good for them at the moment. One win from four. From five, rather. I think that's Five defeats in six. Just not going right for Mourinho. And as I've said since the summer, if they don't get top four with that squad, that is a disaster. There's no excuse. That is unquestionably a top four squad. The defense has let them down this season. But the goals have also dried up a little bit. The Kane and Son purveyor of fine goals company seems to have gone into liquidation um tottenham have uh wolfsburg of the austrian bundesliga in the second leg of the europa league tie on wednesday then they've got burnley at home then fulham away palace at home arsenal away in what could be this season saint totteringham's day and then um then Villa away. The next three are favourable. The next three are where they can turn things around. They do not want to go into Arsenal in bad form because it's a derby. Arsenal playing pretty well. And then, you know, Villa off the back of that's a difficult one. So Spurs need to turn it around. They need to turn it around soon or or Jose will be saying, you know, fairly well in the summer. And... um They'll move on from. They moved on from Pochettino. They won't be beholden to Jose. They'll move on if they have to. Uh, for the Hammers, I mean, they're fourth in the league. I mean, I, I don't know how. I don't know how to explain it, but they are fourth in the league. Uh, they're four points off Leicester, who are third, and United, who are second. Um, two ahead of Chelsea, five ahead of Liverpool and Everton. Everton do have a game in hand, admittedly, but um, yeah, it's just an incredible season for West Ham. Up next, Man City 
away. I, I again, just chalk it, chalk it down as a city win and move on. Then they've got Leeds at home, then United away, then Arsenal at home, and then Wolves away. So it's a difficult run. You know, decent teams to play. But with the way they've been performing all season, you wouldn't put it past them to win two of the five and get a draw somewhere else and just carry on, little fuss. Brilliant job David Moyes is doing. That's all I can say. What a brilliant job David Moyes is doing this season. Um, Aston Villa won, Leicester City two. Villa started well, almost went in front. Um, Bertrand Traore, I think it was, burst onto a ball into the middle of the park. It's a great block from Luke Thomas and Luke Thomas and Yuri Thielemans coming back from midfield uh, to deny him. But then, like, Madison scores the first Harvey Barnes assist. Madison has a shot then, which... Emmy Martinez spills. It's a decent save, but he palms into a dangerous area and Barnes is onto it in a flash and makes it 2-0. Two goals in four minutes, and that was kind of the game. Um, it was a good game of football. Both teams bright, both teams attacking, purposeful. But once Leicester were 2-0 up, they were they were fairly comfortable. Um, good balance to that Leicester team at the weekend as well. Played Ricardo Pereira as a as a right winger with Tim Castanier at right back. And I wonder if that's the long-term plan, or at least the medium-term plan for them. When James Justin comes back, will he go to left back um, with Sayonchu and Evans, and then Fafana when he's ready to replace Evans as the central pairing, Thielemans and Didi, Madison as the 10, Barnes as the uh, as the left winger. It worked really well for them in this game. They had good balance. They, they had good interplay, good movement. I really enjoyed watching Leicester play at the weekend. Really enjoyed watching them play. And again, with Villa, I mean, look, they're not in great form at the minute. They've got a couple of issues. My pal Tyron Ming just doesn't understand how to close down attackers, and he just stood and watched James Madison score the first goal. But there's there's enough in them to be promising, uh, enough in their season so far for them to be pleased about how things are going and where they're going as a club. For Villa, up next, leads away. Sheffield United away, Wolves at home, Newcastle away, Spurs at home. It's not the worst run of games. There's definitely points to be had in that group. Leeds are so unpredictable, Villa could go there and win 2-0 or they could get smashed 4-0. Sheffield United away, they're going to be scrapping for everything they can get, but again, you'd, you'd fancy Villa to go and win the game. You'd fancy them to beat Wolves at home. You don't know what you're going to get with Newcastle. You just do not know what you're going to get with them. And then the same thing with Spurs. They're just impossible to predict what Spurs will turn up and what Mourinho decides to do on the day. So it's a difficult run, but it's not the worst run of games. They're top-half team. They've played like a top-half team this season. I think they'll finish the season in the top half. And I think that's great progress for them. For Leicester, third in the league. Level on points with United, who are second. Going really well. Arsenal, uh, Slavia Prague in the second leg of the Europa League in the, in the week. But then they've got Arsenal at home. Burnley away. Brighton away. Sheffield United at home. 
Manchester United in the FA Cup and then Man City. So, again, you know, as I said, just forget that one. The next four, all winnable, all winnable games for Leicester. They'll fancy their chances of beating Burnley and Brighton away from home. Arsenal and Sheffield United at home, both games they can win. That FA Cup game is actually going to be interesting because I think Brendan will want silverware this year. Um, it's not an easy run, but it's not the most difficult run in the world. They, that should sustain them as a top four team uh, moving into the last eight weeks of the season. And their their running is not the most difficult, though the last three games could be very tough, um, just depending on form. But Look, they're having a a really good season. Brendan's doing a really good job. He's got pretty much everybody fit now. Fafana and Justin, they're out. But, I mean, if everybody had been fit all season, neither of them would have been starters anyway because Evans and Sagunchu is the starting pairing. And it probably would have been Castanier at left back and Pereira at right back if everybody had been fit all season. So Justin took an opportunity, established himself as first choice. And I think when he comes back, he will likely be the first choice left back, despite being a natural right back, but you know it is what it is. He, he'd be happy enough to be a starting Premier League player. Um, they're they're just they're very very strong. When you look at their first eleven, there's not really a weakness to point at. So as long as they keep chugging along, as long as Vardy stays fit, they'll they'll be okay. Um, and by okay, I mean they'll probably finish in the top four. Um, Arsenal nil, Man City won. Look, there's not a whole lot to say about this game. Arsenal played okay. City were really good. They were really, really good. They controlled the game, dominated space, dominated possession. The only surprise was they didn't score more goals. They scored with a Raheem Sterling header after a lovely piece of work by Riyad Mahrez and just a beautiful clip cross into him. Uh, Sterling with a header from about seven yards out on two minutes. That's it. That's the goal. From there... You always felt like City were going to get a second. But they didn't really work the goalkeeper a whole lot. They they got into really good positions. And it was just the final little bit was missing. But some of the football they played was sensational. Um, De Bruyne, Gundogan, Mares, Bernardo Silva and Raheem Sterling playing as basically a front five with Fernandinho as the holding midfielder and João Canseo and Zinchenko sitting in with him to uh, to protect Stones and Diaz at the back in like a 2-3-5, an old WM formation like you would have seen, you know, around the 1950s. And just the continuous movement of that front five where nobody seemed to have a set position they were just brilliant to watch. And De Bruyne had spells as the false nine. Sterling went there. Gundogan went there. Gundogan played left wing for about five minutes, just making little runs in behind Bellerin to annoy him. Uh, they were just brilliant to watch. Absolutely brilliant to watch. They're they're going to run away with the league. They just are. They're 10 points clear. Their next five are West Ham at home. They've got Gladbach in the Champions League in midweek. They've got West Ham at home. Then they've got Wolves at home, then United at home, then Southampton at home, and then they're away to Fulham. So they've got four home games in a row, 
and then they play a bottom three team away from home. Now, Fulham at that point may not be a bottom three team, though their schedule, like I went through, is, isn't the easiest. Um, that's a favourable run to have four home games in a row. That's really worked out well for them. But nobody looks like they're going to lay a glove on them the rest of the way. Arsenal gave it a decent shot. Arsenal played some good football themselves. Um, but there was just a golfing class that wasn't even wasn't even fair. For Arsenal, they are 10th in the league. It is three defeats out of four now for them. But again, mitigating circumstances over the Wolves one. Then they didn't have Leno for the uh, the Villa one because he was suspended. And then you lose to City. Everybody's losing to City at the moment. Everybody is losing to City at the moment. Um, tenth in the league is not ideal, but look, it is what it is. Uh, they've got Leicester next away from home. They've, sorry, again, Benfica in the Europa League. Then Leicester away. Then Burnley away. Then Spurs at home. West Ham away. And then Liverpool at home. That's a very difficult five-game run. A very difficult five-game run. You're playing two teams who should be in the top four in Tottenham and Liverpool and two teams who are in the top four in West Ham and Leicester plus Burnley away in an early kickoff on a Saturday where Dyche will have had his lads up since half five. And he'll have them just absolutely revved to the nines. And Arsenal will be, you know, sleepwalking. Um, yeah, difficult run of five games. Very, very difficult. It's going to be difficult for Arsenal to take much more than six points, seven points maybe from that group. And which, which wouldn't be bad, but given their tenth and they want to be higher up and they want to be challenging for the top six this season, it's not perfect. Um, they could could have done with an easier run of games at the moment to take advantage of the fact that Spurs are so poor, Villa hit and miss, Everton can be hit and miss, Liverpool are garbage at the minute. Arsenal, if they'd had an easier run, could have made ground on those teams and maybe, you know, gotten themselves back in the mix for Europa League spot. Uh, with that run of games, you're sort of looking at Wolves and Leeds and thinking, well, if they have a decent run, maybe Arsenal drop back into the bottom half. Uh, final game of the weekend then was Manchester United 3, Newcastle 1. Uh, United playing poorly and winning is a um, a staple of this Premier League season. This was very much like their performances early in the season where they were terrible for the majority of the game, would turn it on for... 10 minutes and win the game. They went 1-0 up through Marcus Rashford in the 30th minute. Uh, really good goal from his point of view, but if I'm Steve Bruce, Isaac Hayden is getting absolute bollocking at halftime. Rashford goes through 1-1 and with Kraft, beats him easily, then turns back. Hayden, the defensive midfielder, gets into a decent position and what you want him to do is go and help his fullback. Go and press the ball, help your fullback, because you know Rashford has the beating of him. And he doesn't. He stands off and Rashford beats Kraft again, gets a shot away with no pressure on the ball. If Hayden had taken two steps towards him, he probably blocks that shot. And it's, it doesn't go in. Um, Alan St. Maximin, who played really well, had forced a good save from De Gea, 
just about three minutes earlier, scores the equalising goal, controls the half volley well, puts it into the roof of the net. And Newcastle at this point deserve the draw. They deserve to be 1-1. Sloppy defending, gifted United a a, a 2-1 lead uh, with Daniel James scoring. Beats Darla with the near post. You shouldn't be getting beat from there. You know, Darlow didn't have a good game. He didn't have a good game. He should have done better for the Rashford one. I think he needs to do better on this one. Um, And the penalty, the dive on the penalty. One of two dives involved in the penalty that made it 3-1. Marcus Rashford dives. Let's be clear. He dives. There's there's no contact. In no way is there enough contact on his foot for him to go down. And I've seen it described as clever. I saw someone say it was an elaborate fall, but a definite penalty. It's nonsense. If that's a foreign player, they get absolutely battered for that. But Rashford, Kane, Deli Ali, Jack Grealish, and countless other British players who dive frequently. And Rashford doesn't do it too frequently, but he, he, you know, he is a fairly persistent uh, you know, persistent defender. He does do it a couple of times every season where it's just blatant. I mean, that's not a penalty. It's just not a penalty. Bruno Fernandes steps up. I don't know what Carl Darlow is doing. He takes this, it's a, it's, I assume he's gone, you know, he's obviously gone the wrong way and realizes, but then his body kind of contorts a bit there. It's, it's really weird. It's like someone gives him an electric shock while he's in midair. Go and watch it. It's quite funny. Um, but yeah, Bruno makes it 3-1, and uh, that's all she wrote. Now, the dive is one moment of contention from this game. But there's another more sinister moment in this game that if the FA and the Premier or the Premier League don't look into, um, it will be a little bit shambolic. United are defending in the first half. The ball is in the right half space, flung into the box, off a set piece, kind of been recycled, flung into the box. Jamal Lachelles is making a run from the, the back post area towards the flight of the ball. When Harry Maguire decides no to no longer look at the ball, to look right at Lachelles and throw his forearm into his jaw, now, he doesn't do it with any great power. It's not aimed to hurt Lachelle's. It's aimed to block him off. But it's a blatant foul. And given the nature of the foul, it's a red card. It's a red card. You can argue all day, all you want. Lifts his arm, eyes only on the man, and he puts it into his jaw. It's a red card. Referee didn't even notice it. There's no VAR check. Nothing. Carry on regardless. If the Premier League don't review it, serious questions need to be asked. The PGMOL are just are disastrous anyway. And they've had a shocker of a weekend. But it's what we get every weekend. It's what we get every single weekend with this crowd. Until the PGMOL are reformed with you know competent referees, competent oversight, 
not a former referee as the head of referees, you know, looking out for his buddies. We're not going to get any better. The officiating in Premier League is the worst, I would suggest, in any major league in Europe. It's not great in the other ones either, let me be clear. It really isn't, but it's certainly better than this. Um, for United, they stay second in the league. Obviously, they're really happy with, with how things are going. Um, tough run of games coming up, though. Sociedad in the Europa League, they'll play the under-14s because they're 4-0 up. But then they've got Chelsea away, Crystal Palace away, Man City away, in-form West Ham at home, Leicester away in the FA Cup, and then Brighton at home in the league. Now, remember, Palace already beat them this season. West Ham should have beaten them. United scored a goal when the ball went miles out of play from a Dean Henderson clearance, and Paul Pogba scores the equaliser and West Ham fall apart. Brighton should have wiped the floor with them, hit the, hit the woodwork five times in the game. United rely on a penalty after the final whistle to get the win. That's a difficult run of games. And it doesn't get any easier because they've got Spurs after that. Then Burnley they'll beat. Then they go to Leeds. So it's a very, and then they've got Liverpool. It's a really difficult run. United's last four, even at that, they've got Villa, Leicester. United have a difficult run. Let's just be very clear. United's last 13 games, it's a difficult run. There's a couple of, you know, bankers in there, but it's a really difficult run. And it's going to tell us a lot about Oli, especially if they're still in the Europa League trying to win it and trying to split their focus. Really, really interesting run of games coming up for United. For the tune, um, <laughs> not good. Not good at all. 17th, three points clear of Fulham, but with a worse goal difference. The league has been kind to them. They've got Wolves at home next. That's a game they can get something from. West Brom away, again, a game they can get something from. Villa at home, again, same. Brighton away. You'd fancy Brighton, but it would be no surprise Newcastle got a draw there. Brighton can be a bit inconsistent, can struggle to score goals. And then Tottenham. This, this is another one where there's five games and it takes them all the way through to the 3rd of April, as opposed to some of the others, five games only brings you to the 19th of, um, of March. So... It's, it's not the worst run of games for Newcastle. It's what they probably needed at this point. I'm really hoping we get to the final day and it comes down to that Fulham-Newcastle game. I, the, the, the title race is going to be over. There might be some top four connotations that come up on the final day, but it would be, it would be good if it was Fulham turn, loser goes home. Loser goes down, I should say. You know, that would be great. That would be great. It'd be nice excitement for the end of the season, but Newcastle needs to start picking up some points or it's not even going to matter because Fulham are playing better. They probably have the better 11. Neither have good managers, but yeah, again, neither should be in the position they're in. Um, running a little long, but I, I'm going to wrap up with the gossip anyway, because why not? Former Leicester and Watford boss Nigel Pearson is on the brink of taking over at Bristol, at Bristol City, that is, after advanced talks with the championship side, I don't know why you'd do that. 
Danny Cowley's available. Go and appoint Danny Cowley. Uh, at least Bristol Rovers listen to being appointed Joey Barton. Um, Borussia Dortmund and Norway striker Erling Broad Holland Holland has uh, told English clubs he will demand a £78 million package to move this summer. Where do people come up with these figures? Uh, go away. Uh, Manchester United are considering a bid for AC Milan's Italy goalkeeper Gianluigi Donnarumma. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe Milan would take De Gea. And maybe a move there would revitalize him. And he can get back to being one of the best keepers in the world. And the, the problem for United is, if De Gea goes there and rediscovers his form, he's a better goalkeeper than Donnarumma. Um, Chelsea have reportedly opened talks with Bayern Munich's with Bayern Munich over a potential £26 million deal for Nicolas Sula. Uh, I doubt they have. I, I, it's from caught offside. They definitely haven't. It's lies. Uh, Bayern Munich chief executive has confirmed the club are keen to extend Sula's contract, but it all, dep- it all rests on their financial position. They're loaded. Their financial position's fine. Um, Crystal Palace winger Wilf Zaha is prepared to hand in a transfer request in order to leave the club this summer. I mean, is he? Is he really? Well, why hasn't he done that before? Why hasn't he done that before? If he's if he's ready to do it now, he would have done it before. Nonsense. Um, Arsenal targeting a move for Club Bruges and Ivory Coast midfielder Odilon Kosenow. I definitely butchered that name. Definitely butchered that name. Uh, who's 20 years old this summer. He's meant to be very talented. Bruges are by far the best team in Belgium this season, uh, running away with the league. Um, and he's meant to be very, very talented. I think Lee Scott's mentioned him a couple of times before. Uh, Crystal Palace are monitoring Juventus and Romania centre-back Radu Dragazun, who is also linked with Tottenham and Newcastle. Again, he's meant to be very, very talented. Juventus are meant to be quite high on him, though, so I don't know that they'd sell him. Ah, here we go. Uh Dragazon is tipped to extend his contract with Juventus. Yeah, I think that's probably what he'll do. Uh, Liverpool could offer Japan midfielder Takumi Minamino in an exchange deal for Sevilla's Argentine winger Lucas Ocampos. I would love to see Lucas Ocampos at Liverpool. I'm a big, big fan. And um, yeah, I, I would be massively in favour of that deal. Uh, German midfielder Florian Newhouse has cast out over his future at Borussia Dortmund. After recent links with Liverpool, I think he probably ends up at Bayern Munich, if I'm being honest. Uh, West Ham could be set for a summer, summer battle with AC Milan over Sevilla's Morocco forward, Yusuf El- N. Nesri. Um, without top four, you're not getting him because Sevilla will have top, will have Champions League football. Milan will have Champions League football. He's not turning down Champions League football to move to a club that is with respect, smaller than the current club he plays for, uh, or AC Milan, if that's his alternative move. Um, Argentina striker Paolo Dybala is expected to begin talks over a new contract at Juventus in the next few days. Yeah, I mean, it's weird that it's taken this long for that to happen, but, you know, it is what it is. And Brighton goalkeeper Robert Sanchez, who could play for England or Spain, has been given a vote of confidence by his goalkeeping idol, Iker Casillas, the former Spain international 
Um, has he? Well, great. Congratulations. It means very little. You're never going to play for England or Spain, I'm afraid, Mr. Sanchez. Certainly not for England. It just won't happen. Um, and I, I, I just think Spain have uh, a plethora of goalkeepers who are superior to him. So I don't see him playing for either. Uh, but, you know, you never know. He's, 20, he's only 23. He could develop really well. Uh, that's it. That is our gossip for today. That is our show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for uh, to, thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always. And thank you to Fox Hunt for our title music. That's it. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.